Rewind of the Living Dead is brought to you by Germ Death Hand Sanitizer, the only hand sanitizer with 66.6% ethyl alcohol. Kills 99.9% of germs. I bet you thought you were done using hand sanitizers. It looks, unfortunately, folks, like it's not going to be the case. But guess what? Germ Death has got your back. So you visit them at germdeath.com and on Instagram and Facebook at germdeath. Rewind of the Living Dead is also brought to you by reanimatedrecords.com, your place for vinyl, music, movies, DVDs, Blu-rays, VHS tapes, cool horror t-shirts, cool band t-shirts, cool stuff in general. You can find it at reanimatedrecords.com. Fair warning, Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. R.L. Stein, an author nicknamed the Stephen King of children's literature, penned a series of over a hundred books in his Fear Street catalog, and much like his beloved Goosebumps series, there were plenty of attempts to eventually adapt his stories into a film or television show. In 1997, Hollywood Pictures retained the rights to the Fear Street franchise with the intention of making a series of Scream-like movies after the success of those films from director Wes Craven. The project lingered in development hell until 2015 when 20th Century Fox got a hold of the rights and they started to work on a new film based on the original books. That eventually transformed into a trilogy of films with Lee Joniak taking over as director with plans to shoot the movies back to back and then release them into theaters over the course of three months. Finally, in 2020, the production company behind the new films cut ties with Fox after they were sold to Disney, and a new deal was struck at Netflix. The final result was a series of three films set in three different time periods, 1994, 1978, and 1666, about a cursed town called Shadyside that had become the killer capital of the world. There was a time when things were good in Shadyside. But now, that's all gone. Oh man, I turn the around with the skeleton hand, yeah. Hello? Still alive. Who is this? It's happening again. Tonight is Sunnyvale versus Shadyside. Red versus blue, good versus evil. We commence a Kate Are you okay? That was 1978, 5,937 days ago. Shadyside, a history of horror has earned it the nickname Killer Capital USA. It's happening to us. These massacres happen in Shadyside over and over. You were the only person who survived. How do we end this? You have to go back to where it all started. 1666. The devil has come to feast on our misdeeds. If they want a witch. Witches! Witches! I will curse this town. Forever. It's been three centuries. It stops here. It stops with us. 
Who the hell was that? How should I know? She was hot. The bitch seemed normal. Amazing observation. Your best chance is to run from this place. Go! No, no! On Shadyside, we're all cursed. The devil is in me. Any sense for fighting these things? Try not to die. Welcome to the suck. Come back from that mother. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to crank up some nostalgic music and wait for the killers to arrive as we review the Fear Street trilogy from Netflix. Rewind of the Living Dead. I am Damon Martin. And I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, this week we are going to be reviewing not one, not two, but three movies in the Fear Street trilogy that was recently released on Netflix. All three movies were released back to back to back in weeks in July. We gave it a little bit of space between the last film and now so we could get into spoilers a little bit quicker because the movies have been out now for about you know, a month at this point or going on a month at this point. So we're going to get into a lot of stuff talking about all three movies, the concept of releasing three movies at once and what we liked and maybe what we didn't like about the Fear Street trilogy. Big spoiler episode because there are three movies to talk about and we're going to get all over the place. Uh, Damon, this doesn't happen very often where a production company just straight up makes all the all all the movies in a trilogy at once and then doles them out to you um, week after week. Basically, it's like, you know, an episode of television every week, but instead it's a feature length film. Um, I think I'm trying to think, uh, there was something, there was one instance where I can think of that stood out like this. What, what you mentioned Lord of the Rings in the, in the introduction, but there was another situation where they did this. Well, where Lord, was that? Lord of, yeah. Lord of the Rings, they shot, you know, I think they shot all those, you know, back to back like that, but obviously those are movies and those were massive you know, massive movies. Now I know they are shooting the new Avatar movies, the sequels. They are shooting those back to back. But yeah, it's a rare Mission thing. Impossible. Same deal. I, I think they are doing the Mission Impossible. Yeah, that's right. They are doing the Mission Impossible. I think that's just two movies, though, right? Uh, but yeah, like yeah. they are. It's a rare thing where you actually get movies shot together and released. And I don't know in my head, anyways, in any research I've done. Have I ever seen movies released like this back to back to back in successive weeks, not months, weeks, uh, which is, again, completely new. And I think you only can do that now that we have the streaming services that we have available to us like this one going on Netflix. Uh, It's such a rare thing. And I can't remember in any research I've done and I looked, I couldn't find anything like this in horror specifically in terms of films being done all at one time, especially with this kind of release date. Now, we know that Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends 
were going to be filmed together and then released in back-to-back years. I know some of that got delayed with the whole pandemic, but again, that's that's two films, not three. That's two films. So it's gonna. It's not. It's a very rare thing in horror. I couldn't find any examples of where this is really anything close to this had been happening or has happened in the past. And it's wild because this was planned before they were with Netflix. If you would have said, hey, Netflix came up with this idea and they're going to release one movie every week, I don't think anybody would have batted an eye. And most people didn't because they didn't know the backstory, which is they were originally planning to release these theatrically and everything changed. So that was even a wild and bold move to just be like, I'm shooting all these movies right away getting them all out of there, and then we're going to put them on the big screen. They were probably going to release it, I'm, I'm guessing, in subsequent summers, over three straight summers. Or may, I, I may have even heard, I don't know if you saw anything in your research, could it even possibly have been like we release one in the summer and one in the fall they or were like gonna one do, in the winter? They were going to do it over three months. They were going to release a one every month oh. and do it that way. Yeah, oh, so that see, was the – that was the original plan. And then when it got to Netflix, they decided to do it one every week, which is even more novel because that's such a short amount of time between films. And these are full films. They're full two-hour movies. I mean, it took they, – they were filming these movies for 109 days. I mean, this was not a short shoot. I mean, they were filming this for over three months. Now, granted, it's three full movies, two hours each. And in one of them, in, in the 1666 story, you're talking about a period piece. So you're talking about a lot of set decoration, a a lot of costuming you know obviously all of them are to a certain extent because the first one taking place in 1994 you're dealing with a very certain set of costumes i mean we grew up in the 90s so we understand that uh 1978 oh, yeah. 1978 it takes place on a in a summer camp so it's not as intensive in terms of you know costumes you're talking about t-shirt and shorts and things like that obviously you got to deal with the hairstyles and things like that but you're not dealing with a full-on you know cars and and things like that you would normally deal with on a 70s type set and then again 1666 is full on like colonial time so you're dealing with a lot more there so doing all this over three months 109 days that's a pretty intensive shoot oh my god i can't even imagine how intense that shoot was um damon what what did you think i mean because again we're talking about something so unique here like what was your overall impression of getting a trilogy of movies, horror movies. I mean, uh, rain down from the horror gods. Thank you so much. Praise be Satan for sending <laughs> me three movies in a trilogy in one month. But what, what do you think? I'll tell you what, one thing I, overall, let me just say this. I really enjoyed these. I really enjoyed all three movies. I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed the mythology. I really enjoyed the acting. I was blown away by the actors because outside of, Maybe I think one or two people, Sadie Sink, of course, who was in the second movie in the 1978 movie. She is, of course, is in Stranger Things. I'd seen her before. Uh, a couple other of the actors I had maybe seen glan- you know, in, in smaller roles. But a lot of these people in these movies were I was seeing for the first time. The acting was great. The direction was great. The scares were good. The gore was solid. I mean, these were all R-rated features. But I'll tell you the thing I like the most, Patrick, and I'm I, again... This is good and bad. And I say this saying that I like the whole story. I like the trilogy. But what I liked most about filming all three movies and releasing them over successive weeks is that there was no chance to change this story by crowd reaction. I think we've become, unfortunately, uh, and listen, fan service is great at times. I think when you watch a great Marvel movie, and I'm a massive Marvel movie fan, 
there are some things that happen in those movies that are pure fan service and they are fantastic. And when they play to the fans and they play to something you, you want to see uh, Avengers Endgame when Sam says on your left, Oh my God. I mean, I was ready to jump up and cheer and throw popcorn at the screen. I was so excited in that moment. So I get fan service can pay off. Other times when you talk about, let's say the star Wars trilogy, which I know the new one, I'm saying not the old one, the new one, I think fan service ruined those films because they, they, you know, they said that Force Awakens was so much like the original. It was too much of a copycat. And then Ryan Johnson goes in and I know you love Last Jedi, but he basically undid everything that J.J. Abrams did. And then J.J. Abrams goes and redoes it all in the final film because everyone complained about the second film. Now, I'm not saying that you can't make course corrections along the way. Absolutely, you can. But I feel like fan service can become toxic in those moments when you react too much to what fans are saying about a certain film or whatever. So what I like about filming a trilogy like this back to back to back and then putting them out back to back to back is you're telling the story that you wanted to tell. Now, I may or may not agree with your story. I may say, man, that ending kind of bummed me out or whatever. I'm not saying that about Fear Street. I'm saying that that could be the case. But the fact that the artists, the writers and the director got to tell the story they wanted from start to finish without anybody having any kind of input outside of, let's say, the producers and and other writers and the people actually making the films, I enjoy that because... I know I'm seeing their story. I'm seeing their version of the movie. There's no overreaction. Look at Suicide Squad. What's going on right now? David Ayer just put out a tweet the other day just firebombing his version of Suicide Squad because he said the studio completely wrecked his vision of the movie and they were reacting to uh, the reaction from fans from Batman versus Superman. Batman versus Superman was so dour and dire and so dark and ominous that they overreacted and said, we got to get, we got to get certain things in this new movie. We got to make this movie fun and funnier and whatever. And so they changed Suicide Squad to try to appease the fans and it didn't end up being David Ayer's movie. And now he's basically telling everyone, this is not my movie. Uh, that's a bad thing. I mean, I'm not saying every director's right. I'm not saying every, but if you hire a director and you hire a writer to make a story, you should trust in them to tell that story. And again, what this trilogy does is we are seeing the real authentic version of this particular writer and director's vision. I could not agree with you more. I really love what they did here. Um, and not just necessarily like, oh, I love the movies. I mean, I, I like the movies, actually. I, I enjoyed them. I enjoyed uh, sitting down with my wife every Friday night to, to tune into these. That was that was great. It was appointment television and uh, in movie form. What, what more can you ask for? Uh, but I just I could only echo what you're saying. I think fans get a little riled up. They get a little too... Um, What's the word? They, they 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 claim ownership over the material, and this is pre-existing material. This is R.L. Stein. A, a lot of people read this stuff. I never did growing up, but um, uh, you know, some people they get so worked up. I saw it with Game of Thrones when Game of Thrones was out. People would be mad when they'd make a choice or that choice or that. You've got to make a choice, folks. As filmmakers, as writers, as creatives, you have to make a choice. And the best course of action is to stick with the choice. So in this instance, they kind of took that power away from the fans, which I think is a good thing. And even you can even see it on a, in a metrically. Uh, every week, the scores got higher. Now, if they had released this in the theater, and let, let's say on just a totally normal schedule, they made the first of a trilogy, and then let a year go by, let comments go by, 
what are the odds that the second one was going to rate higher than the first? Probably low. And most second movies don't rate higher than the first one. That's almost always the case. People find ways to pick it apart. They go out, you know, they go out and like downvote on purpose, like a second movie because uh, a certain character died or, or they don't like the director. Or There's always some weird pre-framing that goes on. And like fans kind of, they kind of, they, they worm their way into like, the success of a movie based on on nothing more than an emotional reaction, which, hey, have emotional reactions, that's fine, but don't start messing with the filmmakers. They're making a choice. They're trying to make something for you. So I saw that every every subsequent release of Fear Street got higher and higher ratings. I think that the top one ended up somewhere in the uh, high 80s, maybe even the low 90s in terms of percentile, um, in terms of enjoyment. I mean, that's great to see the trajectory. Like, name name one trilogy that does that, where the, the it just gets better and better in terms of fan ratings. Sometimes I think we just need to, we need to stop fan service as much, as fun as it can be, and I'm with you on that. It can be fun to get some fan service every now and then, but, like, I think of the Friday the 13th remake um, that came out under Platinum Dunes. It was kind of almost all fan service, and that might have been the problem with it is that it actually didn't try to have vision. It just tried to sprinkle in as many things possible that fans would like and, you know, and update it a little bit, you know, put in some Abercrombie and Fitch looking actors and and uh, and throw some grease on the walls and all that stuff. But it was trying too hard to please fans. I like that I got Lee uh, Janiak's vision and and we got this fully complete story and we might as well get into the story a little bit and, and the characters a little bit. Uh, what did you, how did you feel about, cause this is crazy. There's, there's like lore that stretches over three movies. And, and I got to actually watch the trilogy twice, which I would normally never be able to do, but I've been flying and working. And so I've been using my time on the airplane to like actually rewatch the movie for this podcast. How, how did you feel about the overall, uh, arc of the of the of the mythology that uh, Fear Street put out there. You know, I gotta say, I really enjoyed it. I really truly enjoyed it for a lot of reasons. One, because all of these movies had a somewhat similar tone in terms of you know you're talking about lead team characters for the most part, and and obviously there's a bit of that slasher feel because you're dealing with the slasher type killers in these movies. I mean, again, you know, we're talking about the first two, especially the 1994 and the 1978, you're talking about very specific kind of slasher kind of movies. Obviously 1978, you know, mirrors Friday the 13th. You can't have a, a horror film at a, at a campsite without that, you know, kind of ringing back to Friday the 13th. And then 1994, you know, kind of did have that little bit of that scream feel, a little bit of that, you know, slasher, that classic nineties, eighties slasher feel to it. Uh, and I enjoyed that a lot. And then, and then when you dip into the supernatural mythology of these movies, you got a cursed town and this other town. You know, you got Sunnyvale, which is the the town that prospers. Everyone there is wealthy, and everyone's well to do. And then you cross the wrong side of the tracks, you go to Shady Side, where you know no one has a good life, and these serial killers just continuously pop up out of there. Uh, like it's, you know, again, like the town is cursed. They call it the killer capital of USA, that kind of thing. And so it's this weird, bizarre thing. And, and, and as you start digging into the mythology, you start to understand and pulling back the layers of how this all happened. And I loved it. I loved, I loved the creativity of kind of taking a slasher film and then adding a much, much deeper layer of mythology behind this entire town and behind this entire story. When you layer in the supernatural elements, it's not just something as simple as Jason was 
you know, they didn't watch Jason. He fell in the lake. He's come back and he's going to avenge these, you know, camp counselors who continue to screw and ignore children. And, you know, it's like, it's a morality tale. Now I love those movies. Let me be clear. I love Friday the 13th. Most of them. I love Friday the 13th and I love Nightmare on Elm Street. That's again, very simple concept. You know, child killer, you know, gets torched by a bunch of parents. He comes back for vengeance on their children. Very simple concept. I don't necessarily need it to be deeper than that. Although when they added layers to Freddy in part three and a little bit in part four, I did enjoy that. I did add a little bit of backstory. I, I liked the, the, what they added to it. They didn't go too far, but I like the mythology. Here you get kind of the best of both worlds. You get a real deep mythology with the whole Sarah Fear, the witch story, the cursed town. But then you also just get these great teen characters. You get a great kind of slasher film. And you also get, you know, the fun of kind of figuring things out. That's kind of the brilliance of these movies. Every one of these has a different layer of them trying to figure out the mystery of this cursed town. And I enjoyed that the underlying mythology was always there, but it didn't necessarily take away. It only added on to the overall fun of the actual horror films taking place because i gotta say patrick i think my favorite part of the fear street trilogy to be honest even though there was a lot of serious stuff going on here and we'll get into some of the other themes and and, and stories that were taking place here but uh it was fun it was a fun series of movies and, and i don't need every horror film to be hereditary i don't need every horror film to be the witch i <laughs> like those movies i'm not saying they're bad they're great movies i'm saying they're serious they're very serious movies. they're movies that are they leave you disturbed when you leave the theater when you get done watching those kind of movies but this was a fun old school horror film series yeah, and it was you know I, I especially the way it kicks off, and it's so it's so wise what they did. They kicked it off with 1994. Um, the Fear Street 1994 is the is the first in the trilogy, uh, where where this town has already felt the long term effects of this witch's curse of Sarah Fear's curse on their town. Um, so you see how how it's been taking a toll on the on the town and on the people in it, but. Aside from the story part of that, in, in, in 1994, you get this like incredible soundtrack. You get you get sort of a heightened version of 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 the Scream franchise, which I really liked. Like I don't want to say I liked it more. Maybe I didn't like it more than the original Scream, but I might have liked it. I might have liked it more than the Scream sequels. Um, and I, I like it. Kind of had that vibe to it. It really leaned into the '90s. I mean, uh, talk about a soundtrack. This soundtrack is insanely good. Like it's every possible hit from the 90s up until 1994, like all these incredible hits that must have cost millions and millions of dollars. I'm guessing that the company that uh, produced it, uh, it was 20th Century Fox, must have owned the rights to most of that stuff. Otherwise, I don't know how they would have afforded it. No movie has quite so many hit songs in it, and that's fun. That, that part, it just... There was this air of fun around 1994. It was I was enjoying it. It was like an amusement park ride. It's bright colors. It's it's over the top acting, but not but not in a bad way. Just like you know, it's like it's, they're like leaning into what the 90s was all about. Uh, I just had so much fun with that. And then I love what the trilogy does. Is it says okay, so we're here in 1994. We see what this is doing um, for the for the subsequent films. We will travel to different time periods to try and unravel this whole mystery. I really liked that because normally, I mean, I think most of our classic slashers, they just kind of go year to year. Most of them, most of them don't, don't travel these big distances. This one was like, let's get to the heart of it. Let's, fi let's find a critical uh, story point 
to go back in time and to make it relevant to everything that we saw in 1994. So then you get 1978, which is, um, you know, obviously a very clear nod to the Friday the 13th slasher or the camp slashers that were so popular in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, and then you get into 1666, which is very much like kind of like The Witch, I think. Like if, if you were to compare Scream or, or uh, 1994 to Scream, I think uh, 1666 feels a lot like the uh, David Eggers' The Witch, which came out a few years ago. I happen to love that. And you get all these different tones. And then the cool thing, um, the thing I'm really glad that they did is at about the 45-minute mark in 1666, they go back to 1994. And they and they close it all out, and they 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 get it all they the, all the stories culminate in 1994, and they, I mean, do they fix the curse? That okay, so that brings up a great point, Damon. I think, and I don't know if you got a chance to, to watch this movie twice, but I or these this trilogy twice. I did. I think they really, really, really muddied up the rules of this world. I, 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 upon the second viewing, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. This is actually more confusing than the first time I watched it. I think it got a little confusing in 1666. I don't think they muddied the rules very much because obviously they were kind of making the rules of the first and second one. In 1994, you just kind of learned a little bit about the mythology and how the, you know, how the curse quote unquote worked. They deepened it in 1978, and, and this is where, you know, you get into, like, where they're climbing through the catacombs and things like that, and they're finding the book and all these kind of things. They're kind of discovering the secrets of Seraphir, the so-called witch that cursed the town, and so that kind of mythology, that, again, started to make sense. I think where it started to get a little bit muddied and started to get a little bit confusing was in 1666 when they were in that period, and then they reestablished it again in 1994. Now, it wasn't anything that I couldn't understand. It wasn't that I didn't get it. It's just, it got a little confusing, a little muddied, as you said. But again, not bad. It wasn't anything that I didn't get, and it certainly didn't ruin the movie. Help me out with this. Okay, because in 1994, the end of 1994 leaves us on this cliffhanger because um, it, it's a it's a story about Dina and Sam, uh, the, these these two lovers in high school. These star, like, star-crossed, uh, angsty 1990s uh, lovers in high school who love each other as much as they hate each other. Um, at the end, Sam gets possessed, and and I I I think she's turning into one of those killers. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I think that I think that's what was happening to her. Like she was being transformed. So okay. So so I think that's the element that makes this thing muddy. Because I go, okay, so, um, you know, and again, guys, this is a spoil. this this whole, this top to bottom, this is a spoiler episode, so I'm just going right into it. You find out that the good family are the ones who are uh, kind of controlling all this, that they're, they're, they're sacrificing people to Satan to, to, to retain their power for Sunnyside, or, or Sunnyvale, rather. Um, so they, for, my question was, why did they choose Sam? Now, was it to hide their secret because she saw that vision of the witch? And to my thought, I was like, I mean, is is that what you picked up? Like, they chose her to be a killer because she saw the vision of the witch, so she knew the secret of the of the good family, right? She was starting to get onto the secret of the good family, yes, from that accident. Right. So where why she not just why not just kill her? 
I mean, you know what I mean? Well, like that I would mean, have, that would have been so much easier. Yes, but at the same time, you know that I think that I think that well, I think that's what you saw at the end of the first movie because they sent the killers after her in the first movie. They all came after her, and that's why they were coined. When they didn't get her, when they failed, that's when she got cursed. That's when she when that didn't work. When all the killers came after her and she survived, then they made her one of the cursed people that was going to turn on them, and that's when she got possessed. And that's when she tried to kill everybody because that once they failed to kill her originally, at least this is the way I'm taking it. When they failed to kill her originally, then they had to curse her. So she would still ultimately become, you know, a killer. She would ultimately become, because at that point, no one's going to believe her anyways, uh, because she's a killer. You know, she's one of the, one of the shady side killers. And so that's the way I took it when they failed to kill, when they failed to send skull mask and Tommy and all the other killers after, and they couldn't get to her. They couldn't kill her. When they finally got back to their house, day has been saved. Everything's good to go. Then her name got etched in the stone and she became a killer because that's the other way they could get to her. That was the way I took it. Right. Yeah. And then, but see, and then what happens is Dina ends up seeing the vision. So why doesn't Dina get cursed? Well, again, the curse only happens when you actually get the etching on the stone. When, when good goes down into his subterranean satanic basement and actually etches the stone and sack, that's the sacrifice. That's the sacrifice. They become a killer. They get killed. They're sacrificed to the Satan. And that's basically how he continues to live in luxury. Yeah. yeah. So her name was never added. Dina was never added. Sam was Dina. Wasn't why not, but why not? Well, I also saw the vision of the witch. Well, again, we don't know. I mean, again, we know, we know that the sheriff knew about Sam. He may not know about Dina. He didn't know that she saw the vision at that point. I guess so. I, you know, and see, so I won't, I won't belabor like, cause I, I, I mean, to me, a lot of little things like would do that. Like she touched that blob thing that like all the killers came out of him. Like, why did that even matter that she touched that? Cause all she had to do was stab and kill Sheriff Good and it fixed everything. Um, but then I don't even know why a killing Sheriff Good fixed anything. Like it, it's my point to all that is that maybe a little bit of streamlining would have helped this movie in that regard, just in that regard. Like, cause I did like all the other elements. I like the acting. Um, I like the killers. How about, let's talk about that for a second. Like it's fun. You know, it's fun that like you get a different slasher every time. Sometimes you get multiple slashers from generations that, uh, uh from, uh, generations that you didn't even see that don't pertain to 94, 78 or 1666. You get other killers too. So that part's cool. I liked all of that, but I was like, I think there needed to be a little more streamlining of the rules. That was my biggest criticism, uh, coming out of this. Cause all the, all the great horror movies and movies in general that I like have a much easier path through uh even i mean think about star wars star wars uh, it spans across uh what six nine eleven at least eleven movies and it's really easy to follow so i you know i think that model would work a little bit better for something like this well star wars is easy to follow until you start getting into midichlorians and all that crap but that's a whole other story for another podcast but (laughs) but but, thankfully uh, midichlorians weren't crucial to the story yeah but uh, listen i get it that there's some there are some muddied rules in here but again that's i mean none of that like us sitting here discussing it and explaining it is us just kind of getting into into the you know in the nitty-gritty of it and yes 
Is there a clear through line they could have done? Sure, but did it ruin anything? Did it ruin the movie for me? No, it didn't ruin the movie for me. It didn't ruin the mythology. And if anything, while yes, there were some confusing parts in terms of like what rules you're breaking or what what did this do? Like how did Sam get possessed? What did that mean? You know, that kind of stuff. And, and, and Sheriff Good, what was he doing? I like the overall twists and turns of it all, which is what I enjoyed. Like basically it's, you know, the, the basics of right. it are this Sheriff Good and his family for centuries. And there was a very subtle, can, did you pick this up? Cause you watched it twice. So did I in the 1666 when Sarah fear, the witch or the one who is cursed to be the witch goes out to visit Solomon good. And his like out in his, like, you know, his house that's away from town, away from their, their settlement. Does he, did I, did I pick this up correctly? He says something to the effect of he was trying to grow crops and he can't get his crops to grow out there. Was that, did you pick up on that? Like he couldn't get his, he couldn't get his farmland to flourish like everyone else. Is that, did you pick up on that? I did. Yes. Okay. So yeah, that he, is, he had cause, right? Yeah. He was like, he needed to make a deal with the devil so he could get his crops to grow. Yeah. So he made the deal with the devil and then every good, every person, every good family member from then on out continued to make these deals with the devil to basically give them, you know, uh, you know, empowerment, give, give them power, give them riches, all these kind of things. And the flip side of that is, is that this poor town of shady side got the other end of the stick because he was sacrificing people to Satan more or less to, to appease him. He was sacrificing souls. And the way he did that was, is he would create these killers. He would put them, etch them on this wall and they would become a killer and they would kill more people in shady side. So this town was just continuously under this curse. So this other place could flourish. So basically the good family could flourish, but because they were in Sunnyvale, the entire town kind of basically, you know, then they, they all, the entire town kind of benefited from his goodwill, so to speak. And so that's the basics right. of it. That's the very nitty gritty of it all. Basically that he sacrificed, shady side for the betterment of his family and his town when you boil it down to that that's kind of what i took away from it did they did they get muddled in the rules and things like that otherwise yes but overall that's kind of the point of that and i enjoyed that twist i enjoyed that element and also i know people some people hate when you get in like the political stuff but you know you and i grew up in the 90s we know what this is like and i love that they tackled a queer storyline i mean i know that uh, you know, there's going to oh, yeah. be some people who hated it, but I love that. I love that they, they, they had that in there. I love the, you know, the beginning you didn't know. And I, again, I know it was kind of obvious the whole Sam thing. They were trying to play on the name and all that, but I loved it. And then again, when they took it to the 1666 part, when they played that as like the reason why they believed these girls were witches was, I mean, listen, sadly, that's, that's true. That's absolutely what would have happened in those days is if you were, you know, if you were gay in those days, uh, in any way, shape or form there, you were possessed by the devil and something was wrong with you. And so I love the, the mirror of that and how that played into the overall story of it all. And so that was something else that they tackled in this movie that was unique and different. And I really enjoyed. I absolutely love that. I mean, that I got a lot to say about that storyline and it'll, I think it'll factor into when, when we get into our categories overall, but I did like that. And, um, because I, it's weird. It's like, it's, it's so cross-generational, right? Like all these people that grew up in the nineties are like, Oh wow. 1994 is so rad. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and then like millennials and Gen Z of today, and even like the tweens of today are like, Oh cool. Like it's a, it's a queer storyline, which makes way more sense. And like, and you know, brings everybody into the, uh, to the fold. Like it, 
you know, slashers don't really do that. They don't really, if anything, the slashers of the 80s, the early 70s or late 70s, early 80s were like sort of morality tales. Like they were, it was all about like, hey, well, don't, don't be naked. Don't, uh, don't have sex. Don't do drugs. Like we're super stiff or you'll get killed. Like that was the whole thing. This is the other way around where it's just like, now we're fighting against really an ancient and shitty idea and 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 when we're fighting back against it so i was i was way into that actually i really liked that aspect of it all yeah i loved that part of the story so we got a lot of categories to get into tonight we've actually added some new fun parts we're going to be doing in this episode and uh and obviously uh if you guys like it as the audience we're hopefully going to do it for more episodes so let's kick things off this week we, we you know obviously we're talking about three movies now this will be a category we're going to use a lot but we're going to talk specifically about these because we got three movies worth of people to talk about our favorite character and our most hated character. Now, let me be clear with these categories. Favorite characters who we obviously we loved, we related to, we enjoyed watching. Most hated character has absolutely nothing to do with performance. This is not a knock on anyone being a bad actor or actress. This is purely on our most hated character, the one that either drove us, to nu- drove us nuts, the one that we literally loved to hate, the best villain, however you want to put it, the one that you were like itching to like, you wanted to, you know, you want to stab him yourself. Uh, not because the portrayal was bad. Actually, if anything, the portrayal is probably better. Uh, because you hated them. So favorite character, least favorite character, or most hated character. So let's talk about favorite character first. Patrick, in the Fear Street trilogy, who is your favorite character? Uh, my favorite character in the trilogy um, was just was a very archetypical uh, horror movie character, uh, Simon. And you meet him in 1994, uh, and he plays a little bit of a part in 1666 as well. That's another cool thing that they do uh, with 1666 and 1994. A lot of the same people play the, play r- both roles. Uh, but the Simon character is sort of a goofball, a weirdo. Um, there's so many characters. You know, I think of like Styles from um, uh, a Teen Wolf. I think of Robert Downey Jr.'s character from Back to School, like the goofball sidekick. And and that's who Simon is in 1994. He's just he's goofy. He's the loner. Um, uh, but but I mean, in terms of he doesn't have like a love interest or anything. And so when everyone else is like having that moment where they kind of hook up in the locker rooms and he's like, wait a minute, did everyone go to pound town? <laughs> so did I. <laughs> I was like, I love that. Like, it's such a like it was such a wacky moment. And, uh, and I like wacky characters, especially with something like this that kind of plays with a lot of different tone. You need you need that that character that sort of is silly the whole time. Yeah, I really I, I like Simon, the 1994. You know, Simon was a great character uh, for me personally. My favorite character was Josh, the little brother of Dina, who was kind of like the nerdy Internet kid listening to White Zombie in the basement. I mean, they introduced him in the movie. He's listening to Fear the Dark from Iron Maiden, which like literally that's me uh, in the in the 90s. You know, <laughs> I, I, I didn't play video games quite as much as he did, but like I was definitely like White Zombie was one of my favorite bands. I was sitting there chilling, listening to Metallica and Iron Maiden so that was definitely me so he was the character I related to the most plus he's kind of the shy kid he has a crush on Kate but obviously he doesn't you know think he could get with her doesn't really think he actually has a chance with her and I love that like obviously I enjoyed that because again very much what I was like in high school kind of the shy kid uh, you know kind of the nerdy kid I loved him he was also kind of the brainy kid the one who kind of figured things out he's like ooh if we do this we could do this and if we do this it'll do this and so 
I kind of enjoyed that character, and obviously he played a big part in both of the 1994 versions from the first one to the last one. So yeah, Josh was Josh was my favorite because I kind of related to him uh, the most. Now let's talk about most hated character, Patrick. And again, let me make this clear: this is not performance. If anything, this is actually a compliment on the performance. Big compliment on the performance. And for me, that one goes to Dina, who is essentially, I think, the star of the movie. Um, but but honestly, in 1994, Dina's character is sort of uh, uh, angry, angry about a breakup that she's had with Sam. And she's so damn toxic for like the first half of the movie. She's like borderline abusive to Sam. Like she's she's she has her reasons, but she's such a you know like like an angsty teen that the things that she's doing they're only there to like hurt hurt and upset Sam and like it, it just got so like ugly at some point I'm like I don't even think I want these people to be together, um and, but that's all down to like how angry and pissed off she was, uh, and you you see her perspective and I get all that but I I just for for so much of the movie I was like no one should be around this Dina person she's just so she was she was so angry so toxic yeah yeah i i mean i liked i liked dina and i, and I really liked the actress you know the actress who played her i thought she did an effective job i get it though and one of the reasons i actually the, the actress who played her by the way was kiana madera i thought she did a great job here's why i was sympathetic towards towards dina and this is why she's a teenager Everything is over dramatic when you're a yeah. teenager. Trust yeah. me, when you break up with your high school girlfriend or boyfriend, it is the end of the world. You're making mixtapes and writing them notes and dropping them in boxes <laughs> just like she was. Like, so that's where I kind of sympathize because we were all kind of her at one point in our lives, Patch. You were too. I know you were. Not me. Uh, no. <laughs> good God. If I believe me, they would have arrested me if I had behaved like her. She was just like I mean, the knives were out. She was she, she was just that kind of character. But it all made sense, and you're you're very much right. It it was a teen drama on top of all the other things. It was very much a teen drama. So in that respect, it made sense. It was just like, wow, this character, ooh, yeah, <laughs> don't yeah. piss her off. So my my most hated character, and this I gotta say, it was a fantastic performance. Uh, an actress by the name of Chiara. Aurelia. She played a character named Sheila in part two in 1978. She was the bully. She's the one who's picking on Ziggy, played by Sadie Sink. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, she literally is stringing her up and burning her with a freaking lighter. And then later, she like, you know, basically, you know, condemns her, her cabin, paints everything in her room. She's torturing this girl. Now, as someone who grew up at times was bullied, I know how much that can suck. You know what I mean? To be bullied is sucky. I hate bullies. And Sheila was such a convincing bully that when it came time oh, for yeah. like Tommy to start axing people, I was like, get Sheila, get her. I want her dead <laughs> because she was such a, like, and she was fantastic. She was such a great bully character. She, that actress was also in a, in a show recently called cruel summer, which is on Freeform, which is very much a teen show. I watched it, actually loved it. I got to admit it was great. Fantastic show. Really enjoyed it. Uh, she plays one of the lead characters in that show as well. And she's a completely different character, which again, speaks to the talent of the actress but sheila was man like there was literally not a redeeming quality about that character and i enjoyed that because obviously you you you, you have a multi-layered character and i appreciate that but i love that this one was not she was just a i for lack of a I mean, she was just she was evil i don't know a better way to say it. she was evil she was a bully and she was evil and yet she wasn't one of the killers but i hated her i hated her she 
she was straight out of a classic 1980s uh, uh, camp slasher film where you have that completely irredeemable bully. Like they're just, and the burning, a great episode that we talked about that where it's like some of these people were just straight assholes through and through. There was no redeeming quality. There was no backstory to help them out. They just sucked and you couldn't wait to get see them get an axe through the face. Exactly, exactly. Now, to that point, let's talk about best performance, which this actually does go into the acting part of the of the movie. So, for you, Patrick, what was your best performance in uh, the Fear Street trilogy? Mine came out of 1666 uh, with McCabe Sly playing Mad Thomas. Now, he also plays... Um, uh, Tommy in um, in in 1978, but in this he plays sort of the town drunk, and uh, and he, he was rather sinister. Like he had that great foreboding kind of evilness to him. Like you didn't trust him. Uh, I, I thought he did a really really good job, and I was like, damn, you know, like of all these performances, and they're all good performances. That one just sort of stood out to me. It reminded me of the like the clip you would see at the Oscars for like okay, and best and best actor goes or best supporting actor goes to so and so, and they would play the clip. Like you'd play his clip from 1666 i thought he did a really really solid job in that outing yeah he was definitely very sinister very evil like that over like the i'm overly into the bible you know and taking things way too serious yeah. like very old testament <laughs> very old yeah, he testament. gets everybody stirred up for the witch like he gets he gets everybody thinking that and that that's that character always gets you in all those movies yeah yeah I, I, he, he was definitely that character uh for me my best performance and and i think every again i think everyone was great in these movies i really enjoyed you know kiana madera who i mentioned played dean i thought she was great olivia scott welch who played Sam and then Hannah in the third part she was great Benjamin Flores who played Josh was great uh Julia Reweld who I'd never heard of before she played Kate in the first one and then Lizzie in the third one I thought she was fantastic but honestly my best performance was Fred Heckinger or Hetchinger I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right uh he played Simon in the first movie I thought he was fantastic and he's been a lot of stuff lately he was in he's in the new show White Lotus on HBO uh he was in the Woman in the Window movie on Netflix uh he's been a lot of stuff recently he was just really good i know he was your favorite character i thought his performance was fantastic he just he was he was very much comic relief but he also played the serious moments very well and i think there's a reason why you're seeing him get cast in so many things recently because the kid is super talented I couldn't agree more, obviously, because he was my favorite character. Yeah. Now, a new category we're introducing this week on Rewind of the Living Dead is Recast of the Living Dead. Now, this is a category where we're going to take one character from this movie and recast them with a different actor. Now, obviously, when we talk about classic movies from like the 80s and 70s, we may not be recasting them with characters from the 80s or 70s. We may be recasting it with somebody new. And again, this is just for fun. So, Recast of the Living Dead, what character... What person in this movie, you could recast any character in the Fear Street trilogy, who would it be? Considering uh, his importance to the entire story, I felt we needed to recast Sheriff Good. Sheriff Good, uh, uh, you know, he's played by um, Ashley Zuckerman, uh, a decent enough actor. The guy did nothing wrong. Uh, But the choice he made sort of lacked what's the word I'm looking for? It's like he lacked the presence that that this, this character needed. Now, I think what what they were trying to do was make him unassuming. I think I think that seemed to be the play for them. I think he I think I actually would have tried to lean him a little bit more towards actually 
being a hero of of some sort. Like you would, I would cast somebody in the role. Um, you know, I'm on a Yellowstone kick right now, so I would say somebody like um, like uh, Luke Grimes, who plays Casey Dutton on Yellowstone, or even Cole Hauser, who plays Rip on Yellowstone. Like they're sort of wholesome, salt of the earth people, and there's some there's some sympathy behind their eyes, and they seem to want to do the right thing. So I think of those two guys. I go, I might recast this with Luke Grimes and make him Sheriff Good because you look at that face; he's kind of got a baby doll face. Let's be honest; he's a handsome kid. Uh, but you would you would get out of him like, oh, this is a this is a nice guy trying to do a good thing. And then that twist at the end, realizing that the goods are actually evil, um, would go great with a with some sort of kind of uh, complimentary casting like that. What about you, Damon? Who would you recast as Sheriff Good? So it's funny, you know, obviously, again, I don't want to take it like this is a shot on Ashley Zuckerman. And, and in a way, again, him being kind of unassuming is kind of what you're going for, because you don't want it to be obvious that yeah. he ends up being the bad guy. So I get that. But I actually would recast him with a guy by the name of Max Minghella, who plays on a, on a show called The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, and he just recently starred in the updated Saw movie opposite Chris Rock. He was Chris Rock's partner in the Spiral movie. Uh, he's a he's a very good actor. Max Minghella is a great actor. If I'm not mistaken, we did that episode about Spiral. He was your best performance. Uh Great yeah. actor, great actor, great presence, and and he's kind of got that role. If you watch him in Handmaid's Tale, he's kind of got that like a little bit menacing, you know, but a little bit of the nice guy. You could like him, but you also don't really you don't really trust him. That kind of thing, and I think that's kind of what would have done a little bit better for the share of good part. But again, I understand where they're going. They want it to be a complete surprise. What well, you know, you want obviously they hint around that he knows more than what he's letting on, but they don't necessarily hint on that he is the freaking guy behind it all. And so him kind of being that unassuming person, you, you, you're kind of thrown off the track by that. But I think Max Miguel, you put him in that role, you get a little bit of both sides. You think, I think he's here to help. Or, you know, I think he is the bad guy. You kind of throw people off a little bit. So I think Max Miguel will be great in that role. Not a bad pick at all. All right, let's talk about uh, best scare in this movie. There's a lot of scares in this movie. Uh, I got to say, for these kind of three movies, these were all fairly good horror films. They were all solid horror films. Good scares, good core, uh, good kills, excuse me, good gore. What was your best scare in the Fear Street trilogy? I had to go with the opening kill sequence in 1994. The thing that opens this whole thing wide up is uh, is this is this uh, cold open that most horror films have, and it stars, by the way, Maya Hawk, who uh, who made her her big splash on the latest season of Stranger Things. It's almost like a scene ripped right out of that. She's working at a mall. Uh, she's going to meet up with her friend as things are closing down, and she gets chased down uh, by the Skull Killer. And I think I just overall that sequence I thought was good and like genuinely terrifying. And she gets like. You know, the, the, the stabbing, he stabs her right in the chest. It's a pretty intense scene overall. So that was my pick for best scare. Yeah, that was a very good one. And a great way to open, too. A little bit of tension, a little bit of mystery, you know, that kind of element of like who, yeah. who done it, that whole kind of thing. It was really well done. Uh, for me, my best scare actually also took place in 1994, and that was towards the end. They realized that the way to throw the killers off the scent, so to speak, is to kill Sam. They have to kill Sam, let her die, and then bring her back. But during the time when they're trying to let her die before bringing her back, they have to distract these killers coming after her. And so there's a great bit of tension right there where the killers are kind of closing in on them. And I got to say, in those moments when you have these kind of four heroic kids, you got Sam, you got Josh, you got Yodina, and you got uh, Kate. 
and 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 you you think Aaron Simon, you got everyone five of them, I guess. You got everyone, and you think at this point they've survived up to this point. You're starting to think everyone's going to make it to the end, and that's kind of the opposite of what you typically think of of a horror film. But even in my, even me, the experienced horror guy, you know, sixty some episodes, whatever we recorded this podcast, I still was like, you know what? I think they're all going to make it, and then they didn't, and that mm-hmm. was the best scare when it actually happened. When they actually got killed, I was like, oh shit. Like they just ratcheted the 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 intensity of this movie up a hundredfold when two different characters got killed right away. That was the best scare for me because I honestly I honestly thought everyone was going to make it at that moment. It really came out of nowhere, and that's what a good scare does for you. Even though it's not like a traditional boo, you know what I mean? It was it, you're just you. I I was right there with you, and even the second time around, I was like. Just the pacing and everything had put me into a, a position of comfort, and then that comfort was ripped right out from under me, and that is a great scare. Absolutely. Let's talk about best kill slash best gore, because I got to say, the original novels are basically children's books. Uh, R.L. Stein, as I mentioned <laughs> in the intro, he's the, he's called the Stephen King of children's literature. Well, these are not children's movies in any way, shape, or form. These are There's some serious blood and gore. And also, I got to say, man, what a great job they did with the blood and gore in these movies. So in these three, tri- in these three films, the Fear Street Trilogy, Patrick, what was your best gore, best kill? My best gore slash kill uh, comes from 1978 at the at the summer camp uh, where Tommy, the Nightwing killer, as they call him, axes Arnie, who's one of the uh, camp counselors. Um, it, it's a, it's a bit of a scare, but really just what what freaks you out is that, you know, it's it's one of those scenes where you think everything's fine and then someone bursts through the door and the axe goes swinging and then usually the, the axe lands and then you, you cut away or something. There's something cheesy. No, 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 no. He comes in. He's, he he rears up that axe and he just he drives it straight into Arnie's face and and just busts Arnie's face open, then pulls it out and goes again a couple of more times. And I mean, just eviscerates his face. Crazy hardcore gore, hardcore kill. Uh, it was one of the best. It's not the best because damn it, Damon stole it. But we're gonna talk about it. Uh, but but that, that Tommy kill and Arnie, you gotta admit that's a damn good kill. And we didn't actually pick, and we probably should have. There should have been a category this week, which is best killer, because there was a lot of the killers. Oh, we should. No, we'll do that. Let's do that after this. Okay, so my best kill, my best gore. I'm just going to say two words to you, Patrick. Bread slicer, okay? In the first (laughs) film in 1994... Kate, who I loved. I loved Kate and I loved that she kind of had a little bit of a crush on Josh and Josh got his first kiss and like, I was rooting for this guy, man. I related to Josh. I wanted Josh to be his girlfriend. Not so much when her head get put th- gets put through a freaking bread slicer uh, and by, by, by one of the killers. It was... It was gruesome. I mean, it when it started, I was like, no, they're not going to do this. Oh, they're going to do it. Yeah, she's going to get saved. They're going to do it. And then when she starts getting put through this thing, and it is just blood and gore, and oh, my God. Like, it was shocking. Like, I didn't think they'd go there, and they went there. If we do, like, a, a year in review, it's going to be hard not to make this best kill of the year. Like it's, it's crazy good. It's, it, and it's so out of nowhere. Like you really do think they're like, no, 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 we're going to save her. We're going to save her for sure. Nope. Her head starts going through a bread cutter and it's hardcore. My wife was watching. She's like, oh my God, what, what the hell is going on? And I mean, just gore and kill 
what an amazing scene uh, and it could be best kill of the entire year it was it was intense it was intense so let's let's talk about that best killer because there's a lot and i also i love the creativity with the killers in these movies they actually made some pretty creative yeah different choices even though some we obviously only got to see briefly and you know kind of sparingly because they were from different eras of shady side but what was your who was your favorite killer in this movie you know, weirdly, and and uh, he didn't even get as much screen time as I was hoping, and it was Skull Mask, the, the very first killer you meet, the one who kills uh, uh, Ethan Hawke's daughter. Um, I really love the imagery. It kind of harkened back to um, Scream a little bit, but uh, you know, it had it had a more realistic like skull face. And then at one point, like the killer gets burned, so then there's this burn aspect to it. I just liked the presence overall, and I thought it would have been really cool if that would have been in the killer throughout. Like that was the killer I kept wanting to see more of, and for that, I had to give him my favorite killer. Yeah, I like Tommy. I like the axe killer. I think his axe kills were brutal. I mean, they were just absolutely brutal and several times. And he was just like, uh, he was literally like a Terminator. He's just going through killing yeah. anything and everything in his path. And that is the purest of the slasher. When you're just killing everything, you know, that was kind of the reminder. And I loved that. And then like the how they got him to put the, the, the hood on his head. I loved that little scene. They actually explained why he had a hood on his head, which I enjoyed. Yeah, uh, I he was just like literally he was just an unstoppable killing machine, and I kind of enjoyed that. Like there was no there was no rhyme or reason to it. He was just killing, killing, killing until he was stopped, and I really enjoyed that. And the axe created some really brutal kills. Oh my god, those kills were it's no, it's no bread slicer kill, but but he made a lot of great kills with he made very good use of that axe. Yeah, absolutely. Now we're also going to introduce a new category, and we've done these in the past, kind of like you know accidentally almost when we talk about plot details and things that we we like or dislike about a movie so what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about rewrite of the living dead now we're not going to rewrite the entire trilogy we're not going to try to do that we're not going to try to ruin anybody's vision we're going to pick one scene in particular to rewrite of the living dead so patrick if you had one scene one moment of this movie that you could rewrite change alter twist whatever it is what would it be well, considering that's a, that this is a trilogy, it's a big a ask. Um, normally, it'll be one movie, and we'll be talk about how we rewrite it. Uh, for this trilogy, though, I think I would go with what my complaint was earlier, which was the there were too many rules, and really, you spend all of 1994 actually learning the wrong rules because everybody is sure it's a witch, and then that kind of get, that it gets negated uh, as as you go down the line. So, I think I would streamline the rules a little bit. And I would, I would probably maybe focus on one character throughout, uh, uh, the trilogy because they do, they do focus on Sam, but they also don't. It, it's, it's super weird. Again, a little too muddy. So I would, I would, I would streamline the rules. That's my, that, that's my big rewrite of the living dead for the fear street trilogy. Yeah. My only rewrite of the living dead. And, and this is again, very minor detail, but like the whole scene in the basement where the girls are in the basement and they discover, the satanic basement and they're kind of, you know, Alice is down there and, and Cindy, the, the two you know, girls from the camp are kind of discovering, they spent a lot of time down there and they're kind of, you know, they're in this basement, you know, kind of walking around and they find kind of the temple and they find this weird, like, you know, heart. that's like kind of the beating heart of Satan, I assume is what that is. They spend so much time down there. And in reality, they don't really figure out anything. I mean, they find it, but they don't really <laughs> figure out anything. So if I was going to rewrite anything in the living dead, it would be that, that maybe, you know, obviously both of the, you know, again, we're completely inspired 
spoiler territory here, both of those characters end up dying. I think it would have been nice for one of them to figure it out in that moment and say, I know who the killer is, and they get killed before they get to tell us. Like, I just feel like they spent a lot of time down there in that Satan basement without actually letting the yeah. characters completely... They, they had them on the track, but they didn't quite figure it out. I think I would have liked it better if you would have added in where Cindy and or Alice figures it out. They know that it's the good family, but they die before they actually get to tell you that, and so that's why we have to wait until 1666 to figure it out. Something, something, some element, I think there could have been a little bit more knowledge revealed in that moment. Even though we spend so much time down that Satan basement, I don't think we got quite as much as we could have in that moment. And I think that would have actually complemented what my uh, rewrite was as well. It just it would streamline and be like, oh, I found the thing. I found the thing. I know who it is. But of course, it never gets to the people who end up surviving. And so it can it can be something that gets uncovered instead of having to go through like a weird like, well, now I also see the witch. Like it's it's one of those weird things. So uh, yeah, I, I'm fully endorse that rewrite like let that scene actually have some purpose other than we're gonna wander around a cave for a long time and never tell anybody what we saw yeah exactly exactly all right let's talk about this is <laughs> this is three movies so we obviously had three different films now again i've said numerous times i really enjoyed all three films but if we had to pick one film of the trilogy that was our favorite which one was it so patrick for you of the fear street trilogy which one was your favorite after watching all three twice, which doesn't happen very often, I came to the conclusion that as much as I liked 1994, I had to go with 1666. I thought the balance of the characters was best. I thought that the it explained the origins of everything as clearly as possible. Like it really did make everything make more sense. Uh, again, it gets weird when they jump back into 1994, but the 1666 portion of it made so much sense. The characters were very well balanced, which I think was an issue in both 94 and 78. And uh, yeah, and, and the cinematography is cool. The, that's where my best acting performance came from. I think it, 1666 just had it all. And so for that, that's my pick. Yeah, I, it, it's almost unfair to pick one because I really did enjoy all three. But if I'm getting pinned down to pick my one favorite, I would have to say it's probably 1994 because I really enjoyed the characters in 1994. I enjoyed the characters in that film the most. I enjoyed the 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 weird strain relationship between Dina and Sam. I enjoyed Josh. Obviously, as I mentioned, he's my favorite character. I really enjoyed Simon. I thought he was a great character. And I loved Kate, that whole, you know, she was kind of the drug dealer, kind of the bad girl, but also, you know, kind of gets, you know, kind of gets involved with Josh. I like that. I also enjoyed, you know, the introduction of the skull mask killer. As you mentioned, I really liked that killer. I loved the intro in that movie, as you said, with Maya Hawk. I love the mythology that kind of gets introduced in that movie, which kind of spins out into the next too so i think 1994 is my favorite but it was a tough choice because i i you know as far as like the kills go i really enjoyed overall obviously the bread slicers number one but i really enjoyed the kills in 1978 i think that movie overall had the best kills the axe kills were tremendous uh, i really enjoyed that one and then i really liked the 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 aspect of going back in time in 1666 and realizing why these women were considered witches and again it came down to the fact that they were lesbians and i love that they injected that 
into that storyline because that's exactly what would have happened in that time period in 1666. So weirdly, I love all three, but if I had to pick one, also the other the other determining factor for me for 1994, what a freaking soundtrack, man. That there's so oh many great God. songs. Like literally, there was like four, I think three or four uh Pixie songs in the first one and i love the pixies so i was like "Ooh, the pixies and oh there's the pixies again and, oh there's another pixie song <laughs> so i was all about the pixies music in that first one overall the music was great so slight edge to 1994 um now yeah that's soundtracks number one <laughs> yeah absolutely now patrick these are already sequels we got three movies in one but there was a teaser at the end where the book goes missing and it teases that maybe we will eventually get more Fear Street down the road. I think obviously a lot of that depends on the success of these films. And if you look at Netflix right now, these films are doing very, very well. So we hope that maybe we will get more. I don't know. Would you watch a sequel though? If they did another Fear Street, whether it's a trilogy or just another Fear Street movie, would you watch another Fear Street movie? Absolutely. I mean, it was it was crazy because we were certainly, my wife and I were like, anxious to see 78 and anxious to see 1666 like we got we got a little taste and we wanted more so if you're going to give me a whole fear street universe let's do it let's have that uh and there's so many different ways to explore it right like you know you have all these other like side kicker uh, uh killers that they never um they never really explain they sort of show them in flashes like the grifter little billy barker uh, there, there, there's other killers, uh, the milkman, uh, the, the, the Ruby lane who sings her songs. And th- these are, these are all featured, uh, slashers in this movie. You could do movies just on them, just on them. You could do television shows that break off, uh, different characters or do a television show, uh, like a limited series that just covers the 1980s. This, this particular franchise is rife with, uh, with possibility for sequels and I'm on board and I want to see them. Yeah, I would say I would absolutely say yes, I would watch a sequel, but I would be cautious, cautiously optimistic about a sequel, meaning I'd hope that the same people are involved, whether it's the director, the writers. Yes. You know, I want to make sure they're the ones making it and it's not going to be some like, you know, B version of this, because I think they did such a good job and the cast was so well done and everything that if you're going to do another series of Fear Street movies or if you're going to do another, like you mentioned, like do another uh, spinoff of like one of the other killers or whatever it is, I'm all for for it just make sure the creative team is in place because what i don't want to have happen is what we see happen with so many great horror franchises is they just start spinning out sequels for the sake of spinning out sequels and they stop being good and they just go out because they're they're popular and then you just drive it into the ground and by the time you're like to movie number nine or ten it's just not it's nowhere (laughs) nearly as good uh now to their credit they already made three pretty good movies in this series so you're already on a good track but if you're not going to get the director back you're not going to get the writers back you're not going to get any of the actors back then pass because i I want if they're going to make it make it good because you've already made three good ones couldn't agree more i would i would hope that lee janiak would be sort of the uh the executive producer of the entire franchise kind of watch over it because i think she did a great job yeah absolutely all right Last but not least, as we close out this episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, let's talk about the most important category at all. We are a horror movie podcast, after all. So, at the end of the day, Patrick, Fear Street Trilogy, Fear Street 1994, 1978, and 1666, were these films scary? You know, uh, so we said very clearly the kills are stunningly good. 
Um, they can get you on scares a little bit here and there. I think 1666 was like the scariest of them all. If you if you want to go, but like, is it scary? That was the scariest one. But I think overall, it's decent entry level horror. If you're a tween or a teen who's never watched any horror movies, my kids will probably be watching horror movies before they're 10 years old. So that's just that goes without saying. This might be this might be something I'd show to them when they're 10 or 11 or 12. Uh, I think it's a good entry level type thing. Uh, I didn't find it terribly scary overall. It was just good entertainment. Yeah, I would say it's scary. I mean, again, it's not terrifying, but I don't need it to be terrifying. I think the the kills in and of itself make it scary because the kills are great. And I love the kills. I love the gore in these movies. So, again, there's different kinds yeah. of scary. And I think in that regard, yeah. Did I get, like, terrified? Was I, you know, nail-biting and, like, you know, covering my eyes and couldn't look at the screen? No. But, again, we've said many times we're kind of desensitized to that kind of horror anyway. So, it's hard to get either one of us in those kind of moments. And so, I could probably count on one hand the amount of movies that have made me do that in the last two years. Uh, so, with that being said, did I think these were scary? Yeah, I watched every one of these movies with my soundboard cranked up and my lights off and I was loving it it was an old school horror film and I kind of wish I had gotten to see these in the theater that was probably my only complaint they were all great on Netflix and I really enjoyed watching them from the comfort of my own home on my big screen TV but I re- I kind of wish I had seen these in the theater yeah I couldn't agree more but uh, I'm glad I got to see them on Netflix and Netflix you can do more of this stuff you can really like kind of carve a little horror niche out start giving Shudder a run for their money because this stuff was pretty decent yeah I was really impressed by that good job good job Netflix All right. with that being said we're going to get out of here obviously we want to say thank you to each and every one of you that tunes in to Rewind of the Living Dead make sure you check us out on all of your favorite podcast platforms Apple Podcasts, Spotify Amazon Music and you can always find us over on my website nerdcoremovement.com if you have questions, comments movies you want us to review anything like that please hit us up on twitter you can find me at damon martin and you are at director patrick a big thank you each and every week for you guys who tune in we appreciate it make sure you check us out all of the archives are up on all of our different podcast platforms so make sure you check us out there for patrick i'm damon we will see you guys next week for another installment of rewind with living dead thanks for tuning in we'll see you then peace